Catherine Amir Farr. And I'm Cal Raustiala. And this is International, International Law Behind, Behind the Headlines. Headlines, coming to you from the American Society of International Law. Welcome to another episode of International Law Behind the Headlines. I'm co-host Cal Raustiala, and in this episode, I speak with former Assistant Attorney General for National Security, John Carlin. Uh, before we start, I should say John is currently a partner at Morrison and Forster and uh, the author of uh, a new book called Dawn of the Code War, which we will be discussing. Uh, and I'd be remiss if I didn't say that John and I were both uh, 1L section mates many, many years ago back in law school. So John, thank you for coming on the podcast. Welcome. My pleasure. Thank you. Great. So um, your book is about, the subtitle is America's Battle Against Russia, China, and the Rising Global Cyber Threat. Uh, and so I want to start with that. I know you handled a lot of issues in your time at Justice, uh, but I want to start with that. And I guess the first question is, uh, what is the Code War? Well, really, when you think about the Cold War, the the Cold War was a period of low-intensity conflict that occurred around the world that required a strategic approach and will to win by the United States and its Western allies. And we are similarly in a stage of low-intensity conflict now. And what I find talking to boards, talking to uh, academic institutions and people is that they're not aware of uh, many incidents that they think are in the realm of science fiction, but have already occurred and that are occurring day in, day out from adversaries like China, Russia, North Korea, and Iran. Can you give us one or two salient examples of things that maybe are less familiar? I know in the book, you, you talk about some relatively familiar episodes uh, like the Sony hack, but what are some of the less familiar ones that people should know about? give one example so and it demonstrates what's unique about the problem here so imagine you're a business and you discover that you have what looks like a relatively unsophisticated hack in which a small amount of personal identifiable information some names and addresses were stolen and then you get extorted this is happening to thousands and thousands of businesses every day and you get extorted and it's for 500 bucks through bitcoin so low amount of dollars, unsophisticated hack. Most businesses blow off that request for the 500 bucks. They don't work with government. But this is a real case. And in this case, if they had done that and not work with government, they would never have found out that on the other end of that keyboard was not the low-level crook that it looked like. It was uh, an extremist from Kosovo who had moved from Kosovo to Malaysia to get better access to broadband, believe it or not and from Malaysia was working with a co-conspirator in Kosovo to hack into this U.S.-based company and steal this entrusted customer information. And he really did want that 500 bucks. But as is indicative of the new times in which we live, on the back end, he had become friends with one of the most notorious terrorists in the world at the time. And he became friends entirely through social media. They never met in the real world. This is a man named Junaid Hussein, who is a convicted former criminal hacker who was radicalized in prison in the UK. And when he gets out of prison, he moves and joins the Islamic State, uh, ISIS. And he moves to Raqqa, Syria, where he's located at their very heart. And he was at the tip of a spear of a exploitation of social media, a crowdsourcing of terrorism that 
was really driving the threat inside the United States. When I was leading the National Security Division overseeing all international terrorism prosecutions, we brought more terrorism prosecutions in my last two years than we ever had before. And that was because of two things. One, in almost every case, we saw social media involvement, and linked to that was the age of the defendants. Over half of them were 25 or younger, and most troubling, one-third were 21 or younger. And at the, the person leading that strategy, one of the best people at recruiting and convincing people to kill where they live was this man, Junaid Hussein. So Junaid Hussein becomes friends with our hacker through Twitter in Malaysia and convinces him to take the information that he stole with his co-conspirator in Kosovo from this uh, company inside the U.S. where it was entrusted. And Junaid Hussein could care less about making 500 bucks. He wants to do what the Islamic State was interested in, which was murder. You know, this was a group that killed Muslims and non-Muslims alike with impunity. They used rape as a political tool, and that was taking women and children and putting them into slavery. And consistent with that group, he turned that stolen uh, information into a kill list. He looked for people who looked like they were .mil or .gov, created this kill list, and then again, using Western technology provided essentially for free, Twitter, he pushed that back to the United States with a call upon uh, their followers to kill these people whose information was trust entrusted to this U.S. company, kill them where they live. That is the current threat that we face. And because this company worked with government and shared information, we were able to take effective action, which is why I can tell the story in such detail in the book. And we were able to arrest Farizi, that's the name of the guy in Malaysia, and extradite him to the United States where he's currently serving 20 years in prison. And for Junaid Hussein, he was outside the reach of law enforcement process and was killed in an openly acknowledged military strike by Central Command. But when you think about that, particularly for your audience and international lawyers, what's the problem we're trying to solve here? It crosses five different countries. It crosses the traditional line between criminal and national security. It requires you to respond at the speed and scale at which digital information moves. And then most importantly, and this is where we as a government are still struggling to change our approach, when you think of the billions of dollars that were spent post-September 11th building new departments like the Department of Homeland Security, building new uh, agencies, Director of National Intelligence, the division I led, the National Security Division, that all had to do with tackling the problem of sharing information within and between governments across the law enforcement intelligence divide. But to tackle the code war, this new threat environment that we're living in, private companies are on the front lines, and we need to figure out mechanisms that incentivize those companies to share at the speed and scale at which these threats occur, and, and this really requires new ways of thinking and possibly new structures, we need to figure out a way to get governments to share uh, at the speed and scale that private companies need to defend themselves. You know, there are so many interesting issues you raised in that uh, example, which is really a fascinating example. And uh, I guess I want to start with, maybe we could start with the line between, you know, kind of uh, conventional domestic criminal prosecution uh, and as you put it, national security, or maybe even uh, something that might rise to the level of an armed attack under international law. How, uh, how, where do you draw that line? And uh, how complicated is it to, to, to draw it? 
Yeah, it's a great question. So one thing is there's been a lot of thought into what constitutes uh, the use of armed force in this in this area. And what a, one thing I wanted to encourage with the book and with the real life examples of cases that we've struggled with from the one I just described to the North Korean attacks on Sony is even if we don't characterize it as armed conflict, that doesn't mean we shouldn't approach it like a national security problem using all of the tools at our disposal to deal with national security threats the way we have with terrorism, the way we have with those who proliferate in weapons of mass destruction. So with Sony, uh, you know, and the, and the details always make these uh, more interesting, right? When you really deep dive, but Sony was interesting. So there's an instance where we decided, yes, it needs to be a national security threat. It's the only time in my career I've gone to brief the president of the United States in the Situation Room and had to start off with giving a plot summary of a movie, which in this case, for your listeners who have seen the interview, is hard to do because it's not a movie that makes a whole lot of sense, and it's not often you're talking about you know pop smoking <laughs> jokers in the Situation Room. But the reason, and so some people ask, like, why are you treating this so seriously? Why is this, why is the, the uh, National Security Council convening and you're treating this like a Situation Room event? And in part, I wish we'd learned this lesson a little bit better, is that our whole structure, you know, we war-gamed out. What's it going to look like when a rogue nuclear-armed nation decides to attack the United States through cyber means? We were not thinking bad movies, or in the case of the attack on the Iranian uh, by Iran on the Sands Casino gaming, we were thinking infrastructure, things, you know, electrical grid, water. But what they were attacking in Sony was free speech, you know, a fundamental value to our democracy and imposing a different view of the law that, you know, applies in North Korea where there is no free speech to the United States. And if we didn't take action, then we would allow them to chill speech from over there on day-to-day life. So they were attacking a value. And that is what animated our response in part. We're working closely with them in less than 28 days. We were able to figure out who did it, apply this new approach that we had first applied with the People's Liberation Army and figure out who did it, make it public and impose consequences. In this case, sanctions. We did so without ever saying, in fact, the president explicitly said it was not an act of war. I have a quote in the book from Michael Hayden, the former head of the CIA and uh, National Security Agency, who said he was infuriated when he heard that. And then he paused and was like, well, I don't know what you do call it. <laughs> maybe, that, maybe that makes sense. One kind of uh, just practice note, which is referring to earlier on the details, interesting about that case is it really would not have helped the victim to call that an act of war because they had insurance as most companies do now when it comes to cyber, and there's an act of war exclusion in the insurance policies. And those policies would be pretty useless if act of war gets so broad that it it covers all uh, nation-state activity, because there is so much nation-state activity in this area. Absolutely. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Uh, you do mention in the book, and you know, I've heard many people over the years uh, say uh, some version of the cyber Pearl Harbor thing that we need to be prepared for. And, and as you just noted, it seems like, in fact, that that risk has been eclipsed. And I guess this is really what, what I want to ask you about. Is, is this true? Uh, it seems like it's been eclipsed by, instead of an attack on infrastructure, uh, what we see more and more is the weaponizing of social media information 
uh, sort of soft things that end up being incredibly uh, destructive. So both in these particular hacks we've been discussing, obviously in the election, this is uh, arguably what occurred there. Um, so is that your sense that we kind of misapprehended the threat in the past, or is there still a real threat of some kind of, uh, I don't want to say it's a kinetic attack, but an attack that results in uh, the failing of a power grid or something of that nature? Yeah, unfortunately, I think we need to worry about both. Um, so, yeah, we, in the case of Sony, I wish we'd focused more on that lesson. So you think of what Sony was, it really was three types of attacks. It was a destructive attack. So they introduced malware that turned the computers into bricks. They did not function. That is very similar to a much lesser known attack, which really was the first destructive attack on U.S. soil, which was Iranian-affiliated actors against the Sands Casino. Interestingly, that attack was also linked to provocative statements. So Shelley Adelson, the head of the Sands Casino, said something about turning Iraq into a nuclear dust cloud. That did not go over well with the Ayatollah, who issued a fatwa. And then we saw a, a subsequent destructive attack. It didn't get the same attention as Sony. Sony does that same type of destructive attack. They also stole Sony's intellectual property, you know, the thing probably people most identify with, with cyber-enabled activity. And they released it to cause damage to the company. Again, not what people remember. But to your point, Cal, what people remember is the stolen, salacious emails, the least defended part of uh, a network that were then released through non-traditional media and ironically picked up on by the mainstream media. And the mainstream media really imposed the most pain on behalf of this North Korean regime who fundamentally does not believe in the, in the right of the media to, uh, to exist. And it's that playbook that the Russians imitated, right? They didn't hit the part of our infrastructure that's best defended and hardest to alter, which would be the vote counts. Uh, instead, they used this sideways, uh, sideways attack. And partly, you know, we can defend ourselves by understanding what's occurred, sharing that story and making it public and changing our approach from default, keeping that in the shadows, classified and in the intelligence community. And you look at kind of low-cost ways to protect against that attack. Macron, when he was running uh, for president of France, knew the Russians were going to do the same playbook, saw what happened to the DNC in the 2016 campaign. And what they did is they didn't protect their system. Instead, they deliberately put information that was not true in the emails, watched as Russia followed the same playbook, stole it and attempted to release it. And then before the media ran it, said, hey, guys, some of what you have is false, and we're not going to tell you which is false and which is true. And that helped take the sting out of that attack. That's so interesting. So as you note in the book, and, and you just alluded to, so many of the adversaries that we face who are behind these attacks are nation states, uh, you know, Russia, China, North Korea, obviously Iran and others. And so uh, it raises the question of whether, and this has obviously been a live question for some time, but I just am interested in your perspective on what kind of international framework do we need, or do we in fact need one uh, to address kind of nation state on nation state attacks? Is there, uh, you know, a multilateral uh, treaty that we should be negotiating? Uh, is there uh, some other kind of agreement or understanding we should be pursuing? Uh, so, so what's your perspective on that debate? Yeah, so when did we 
focused on a little bit, I'll take you back to the first case that we did in this area, which was the indictment of five members of the People's Liberation Army, specialized unit 61398, that targeted private companies for economic purposes, for the benefit of their economic competitors overseas. And when we brought the case, there was a fair amount of controversy. Well, China wasn't very happy, but also from other scholars saying, hey, why are you everybody spies, it's recognized under international law, why are you bringing criminal charges against these uniformed members of another military? And the answer in part was told by the facts of the case. So this was not traditional espionage. We put uh, activity in there like Westinghouse was about to do a joint venture before their joint venture partner was gonna lease the rights to a, lead, uh, to a pipe. They went in the night before and stole the technical design specifications, not for national security purposes, but to avoid having to pay. Or similarly, they went and attacked a, a U.S. subsidiary of a German multinational solar company. They stole the pricing information. They used that information to price dump and force that company into bankruptcy. And then, as an, uh, to add insult to injury, they went and stole the whole litigation strategy when that company sued for unfair trade practices. They were stealing everything. And often in terms of the international law uh, ramifications, you know, I've described this to lay audiences, but your audience will be more familiar with the idea of an easement. Like everyone knows the an easement, it's customary law, and it's the idea that if you let someone walk across your lawn long enough, they get the legal right to walk across your lawn. Well, as you, you know, uh, international law is fundamentally a law of customary law. And as long as we were allowing China in particular, but other countries to steal information that was causing economic damage now, real harm to real companies with real victims, we were creating international law. It just was the wrong law. We were saying it is okay to use your military and intelligence uh, services that way. So in some respects, bringing using our domestic criminal system unilaterally to bring charges was a way of putting up a giant no trespass sign. And by bringing those cases, we were helping to create international law and hopefully build consensus around what norms should be. And you know, it worked for a period of time. That case plus another case, so talk about in the book that's not as widely known, but China knew at the time that resulted in the arrest of one of their operatives, Sue Bin in Canada, where he was ultimately extradited and uh, put in prison in the U.S., along with the new executive order that President Obama signed post the North Korean Sony hack that allows for the sanctioning, not just of the military members who steal secrets, but the companies or individuals that benefit from the stolen secrets, I think brought President Xi to the table, had a breakthrough where he agreed bilaterally with the United States on norms one of which was you shouldn't use your military and intelligence to target private companies for the benefit of their competitors. This that was in Sunnyland? The, the sunny sunny, this wasn't uh, actually, this was in Washington, D.C., and it built on the Sunnylands uh, Summit, so-called five, five Points Agreement. So they, um, they reached the agreement. The G20 then, then adopts it. Uh, so to your question, I, I don't know if the right place to start is trying to come up with an international treaty versus continuing to articulate what the red lines are, you know, activities that 
that like-minded nations simply think are beyond the bounds, like indiscriminately unleashing a cyber worm of mass destruction, not Pecha, that Russia has done and North Korea has done with WannaCry, working to use tools that have uh, legitimacy behind them, like our criminal justice system, in conjunction with multilateral efforts so that like-minded countries, for instance, impose consequences like ejecting uh, people from um, embassies, you know, PNG and persona non grata uh, embassy personnel and sanctions so that we start creating that, that customary law about what is and what is not acceptable. Great. Uh, you mentioned earlier the difficulty uh, coordinating within government, let alone across governments. And I'm curious, you spent your time at Justice. Uh, how did you work with your State Department colleagues, uh, as well as your DOD colleagues on this? And uh, were there differences, uh, meaningful differences between uh, these different parts of the government on these questions? There were. And, you know, when it functions well, one thing that's great about the National Security Council processes that have been set up, um, it's often called the Deputies Committee. It's one level below the principals or cabinet members where a lot of these issues were wrestled with and debated is that you have people bringing the perspectives and strengths of their different departments and agencies. Um, so, you know, f from justice, uh, legal point of view, we're in close contact with victims and hearing what's happened to, the, to them and know the criminal toolbox, Treasury Department on the pros and cons of bringing sanctions, state on the overall diplomatic uh, relationships and so on is that when you have that type of conversation, there's disagreement, but it airs out uh, both different tools that can be applied to it and the pros and cons and allows for a decision to be, uh, to be made. And ultimately, there was agreement, I think, on a strategic approach, although there were concerns le uh, leading up to it, because it's not without cost, right? We have to make a decision, for instance, that the degree of loss we are facing from intellectual property theft, trade secret theft, uh, and related activity is one that is worth a period of churn if we start switching to an approach of raising the costs until the behavior changes. I think the recent announcement about two weeks ago from former Attorney General Sessions of the initiative with China shows that this administration has concluded that we're at that point and that we're going to go through a period of turn to change, uh, change behavior. I hope similarly there's agreement across the agencies from the commander-in-chief down that some of the Russian aggression that we're seeing, whether it comes to undermining our election, destroying businesses ranging from $500 million worth of damage to a global shipping conglomerate to $300 million of damage to FedEx from one indiscriminate tool alone and not Pecha along with their harboring of cyber crooks, uh, leads us to have a similar strategic campaign to raise the cost when it comes to Russia. Well, John, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And uh, again, good luck with the book. It's called Dawn of the Code War. Uh, and if you like this podcast, please look for international law behind the headlines on iTunes.